gosh, it's good to be back. Feels a bit strange though. Feels like I've got the running shoes back on and I haven't been training for like a good month or so. But we're starting a new series and man, do I love a good series. I love a good series. You know, when we uh, track through the year and have a look at the, um, when we come and do a series. Do you know it's normally 12 weeks for a series? Super indulgent, right? It's just ridiculous. It's just, this one's gonna be six weeks long and it's gonna be a really good time. It's on simplicity, the uncluttered life. Doesn't that feel nice? Who just feels just relaxed even just thinking about it? Feels good, right? Um, do you know, at the core of St. Augustine's is this really simple idea. It's, um, it's not complicated. It's a simple idea that the key to human flourishing, uh, the key to being fully alive as a human being, doesn't revolve around a set of principles, but it actually revolves around a person. It revolves around a relationship with uh, Jesus Christ. And so spiritual practices, um, we do, we kind of talk about them quite a lot. It's a bit of a, quite a big chunk of our life. Spiritual practices are quite simply uh, small things, not large things, it's small things, uncomplicated things that we can do that position us to be open to God and to be open to working in his world. There are these small things that we can do so that we can be with Jesus, so that we can become like Jesus. And then we can be empowered to affect uh, God's world in the same way that Jesus did. And I want to be really clear on that. You know, for whatever our spiritual practices are, they're actually, they are an engagement strategy. They're an engagement strategy. Spiritual practices are not a disengagement strategy or a withdrawal strategy uh, for the spiritually indulgent. There are small things that we can do so that we're open to God and therefore open to God working through us into the world. They're about engagement. They're not about uh, disengagement. And so the same is true actually for the spiritual practice of uh, simplicity. So when you think simplicity, just think about, my gosh, how is this gonna drive me into God's world and to be more effective? That's what we've got to think about. It's more than just, you know, I love Marie Kondo. It's so great. It's not going to be about that. It may involve a little bit of that, but it's not going to involve much of that. You know, because whatever way you view it, you know, you can look, if you look up in the telescope into the uh, night sky and it's all in its vastness, or you turn it around like a microscope and you look at, you know, the amazing detail of a cell, However you look at life, and what you see is that creation itself is made up of a complex, rich mosaic. Life is complex, and it's an ordered complexity. All of creation is a wonderfully ordered uh, mosaic, a rich complexity that has been ordered uh, wonderfully. I mean, think about even our own physiology, right? Think about our brains. You know, what is it, 86 billion neurons? You know, all kind of connected up together, an amazing web, an amazing complex network that we haven't really kind of figured out in any kind of way. Many of you live in a commercial world where there's kind of deals that are going on that have a range of moving parts. It is a very complex uh, situation. Think about your social context, family, friends, spouse, children, grandparents, you know, colleagues. All this is kind of our social lives are actually exist within a complex uh, but ordered uh, web. Think also, I mean, if we just, you know, according to the Bible, 
you know, at the very center of reality is God, a single God, who God's self is a complex unity, Father, Son, and Spirit, in this dynamic relationship, dynamic, flexible relationship that brings life uh, and order. So what I'm saying is that life, creation itself, is a rich mosaic of complex order, and the way of Jesus shows us how to live in that and be a part of ordering that. Again, just to be clear, this is not a withdrawal strategy, this is an engagement strategy. How through the spiritual discipline of, compli- of, of simplicity can we be a part of the rich ordering of uh, the complexity of creation? You see, the opposite of simplicity is not complexity. The opposite of simplicity is disorder and chaos. They're quite different things, right? So the opposite of simplicity is not complexity. The opposite of simplicity is chaos and disorder. And so the goal of the series is really about how do we order our hearts? How do we order our minds? How do we order our speech? How do we order our desires? How do we order our possessions? How do we order our sense of fulfillment so that they align with the kingdom and the power of God? You know, in a nutshell, what I wanna do over the next six weeks, since we can't have 12-week series any longer, It's really just look through this verse, this simple verse here. Can we bang it up? This is in Matthew 6. It comes nearly right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus kind of sums it all up in one little uh, move. He says to his disciples, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Did anyone um, come here today with a bag? Anyone's got a bag with them? Anyone come here today with a bag? It's absolutely wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. (laughs) Hello, Katie. Can I borrow your bag? (laughs) Thank you. I promise I won't look in here. And I promise to look after it. No way. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Would you visit me in hospital? (laughs) So great. I could try and explain this to you, but it's just better if I just demonstrate it, right? It's going to make, who's engaged now? You know, preaching the science. It's a science. This is easy stuff, right? So here we go. Um, hold it like this. Now, I, like I said, I could try to explain to you um, the nature of um, what a kingdom is, but it really is quite a bit easier to explain. A kingdom is the range of a person's effective will. The kingdom, I'm going to put this down, it feels ridiculous, trying to preach with that there, sit there, oh my goodness, so many things in there, you're ready for a nuclear winter, so great. Um, So the kingdom is the range of a person's effective will, and the idea is that as a person grows and matures, the range of their effective will, who can believe my ears are not big enough to hold this thing? Absolutely impossible. The king is the idea of the effective will actually grows and grows and expands and expands. Think of a child, right? As they're, you know, they're small, they're little. Think of Lily and the guys down here. You know, there's a time they couldn't control their limbs at all. But the idea is that as a person grows and matures, their limbs, I'm going to get rid of this. All right. Two. Here we go. That's much better. Um, the idea is that as a, as a child grows, they get more and more control of their body. 
right? Their effect, the range of their, effective, of their effective will increases. So they get control of their body. And then they start to learn to get control of their emotions. And then over time, they get control of their thoughts. And as a child grows even further, they get control of further complex things. They get control of their social situation. They start to have a say over finance. And then they, as they grow even further, they may have to get to say over, um, you know, a collective entity like a company or a business. And then they get to have a bit more of a say over you know, intellectual resources and financial resources. Can you see the point of um, the human creature is to increase the range of their effective will. Now, human beings are the most amazing creatures because what you know, God has called us to do, what God has designed us to do is in fact be partnering with God to be um, part of ordering his complex uh, world. Human beings are actually even called to be a part of ordering spiritual reality itself, which is quite scary when you think about it, right? It's hard enough to deal with the physical world, but actually God wants us to partner with him to be a part of ordering spiritual reality in and of itself. So a kingdom is the range of a person's effective will. So let's just take, for example, this mat carefully placed, helpfully placed here. Let's just imagine this mat is the range of God's effective will. Remember the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come where? On earth as in heaven. Okay, so this is the range of God's effective will. Here's a chair. At the center of the, at the, center of the kingdom is Jesus. He's on the throne. You can't see him, but he's there. That's what everyone says. It's true, it's true, it's true, it's true, it's true, it's true, it's true. So, yeah. <laughs> I've, got, I've got no words. So now, let's imagine this bag. <clears throat> let's just imagine this bag. Who, who has, this? who owns this bag? Katie, right? This is, and who has say over this bag? Katie does, yeah. So this bag is actually part of Katie's kingdom or queendom. Let's go with queendom, right? It's part of it. It's part, part of your care. Now, the idea, now I just want for a moment to, for you to, to think about this bag as actually different elements in your life. This bag represents different elements of your life. And what Jesus is inviting you to do is to do this. Jesus says about your life, hey, I want to, how about you come and you bring the different elements of your life and I'll hold them for you, but you get, and I'll teach you how to work with them and how to use them for uh, their good. You know, you think about all the different elements in your life, all the different responsibilities uh, in your life. You know, the calling you have on the life, the business that you have to steward, the organization you're a part of, the responsibilities you have, uh, the children that you're in your life, your identity, uh, your place in the world, your, you know, the talents that God has given you, the financial resources under your control. When you think about all of this, these things are, you know, part of our lives, hum human life is so rich and varied that in fact, many of the things that we have say over, that God has given us say over, are far much larger than we are. And so, in fact, what they can do is when we hold them ourselves, they can actually kind of, like, they're too big for us and they can crush us or they can deform us. And so what Jesus is saying to you is, how about I take them 
and I look after them for you. And so Jesus gets to hold them and then he'll teach you how to use them uh, in the world. Is this making, is this this good? So so this is what it means to seek first uh, the kingdom of God. Now, I've been recently diagnosed with extroversion. Sorry about the pause, it's too long, wasn't it? I've been diagnosed with extroversion. I've been an extrovert all my life. I was born with it. Um, I've just got this irrational love of human interaction. It's just part of the deal. If you're on, if you know anything about um, the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram 7 on the Myers-Briggs, I'm an ENFP, guilty as charged. Love it, I'm guilty as charged. I love people. Now, one of the upsides of, I mean, if there want, I mean, of course there's lots of upsides to being an extrovert. You know, you're just incurably optimistic about everything. But if there's this upside, the downside to my kind of personality profile can be that um, there's a tendency to become a people pleaser. So to use your words or to use your actions to gain the approval of people. The worst fear, the unbearable feeling of the extrovert is that someone wouldn't like them. You know, I like you, why don't you like me? I can't survive without it, right? There is a, and so what happened, I'm in recovery, right? I've been recovery, I've done lots of work on this. So, but every now and again, do you know what happens? I actually do find myself, you know, slipping. I do find myself kind of slipping up on that. And then what I do do is I use words to try to gain people's approval. And in that moment, what I do is this. Suddenly, I'm holding my reputation in my hands. I'm seeking to look after it. And I move my reputation out of God's hands and I place and I come over here. And now I'm living a duplicitous life. One foot in the kingdom, one foot trying to hang on to things and control things for myself. And when I find myself doing that, here's what I do. I mean, after a small time of self-loathing, which actually has got no one anywhere, ever, what I do is I shut myself in my office and just like for the next three or four days, I'll just take some time with my coffee and I'll sit down in solitude and in silence and learn to survive without people's approval. What I do is I just shut my mouth. And do you know what? You can breathe through your nose. You don't die. Without, with the absence of people's approval, you can still survive. And in that moment, what I'm doing is I'm allowing my body to feel safe and secure without the need for people's approval. And so when that happens, slowly but surely, place my reputation back into God's hands. And now I'm back living the simple life of allowing my yes be yes and my no be no. Does that make sense? Now, when I picked up that bag, who felt a little nervous? Yeah, come on. Who, who was thinking to myself, who had a little bit of transferable or transferred vulnerability? Thinking, oh my gosh, new, please don't do anything stupid. It's somebody's bag. For goodness sake, don't look at it. Right? I was thinking that myself. You know, but what often can happen, do you know what, do you know that feeling? That's actually what faith feels like. That's what faith feels like. And so, and what happens is, so often is we actually don't like that feeling. We don't like that feeling of stretch. We don't like that uncomfortable feeling. So what can happen is that when we feel like that, because it takes faith to do this, right? It takes faith to let it go. It takes faith to place it into somebody else's care. 
And what we don't like is that feeling. And so every now and again we go, nope. And we pick it up. And we pick up things. And in that moment it feels kind of safe. Right? But the reality is you're not safe. The safest thing to do is to slowly and surely remind yourself that actually God loves you, God is for you, God wants to see you flourish, and you're actually not designed to carry all the things that God has called you into. And so the very thing, best thing to do is learn to do this. But I've got to say, it's a learned thing. You have to learn what does it mean to live by faith? What does this feeling feel like? And so over time, living in the kingdom of God, the way of simplicity is that we take our businesses, we take our friends, we take our responsibilities, we take the resources that God has placed into our lives and we slowly but surely get used to living with them here, not them here. This is the way of simplicity and life and joy and freedom. When you live out here, it's all up to you and it's disordered and it's gonna be the way of burden and chaos. Does that make sense? That's what we're going to be doing for the next six weeks. I'm going to give this back to Katie. Well done. That's awesome. All right. How are we going, guys? We're all good? Cool. So why are we doing this for the next little six weeks? Why is it so important now? It's so important, actually, because for the last four to 500 years, Western society has been running off the cultural software called secularism. And that's really came to light um, and surfaced most clearly in the work of René Descartes in the 17th century and in the French Revolution in the 18th century. And in a nutshell, what Western secularism became to be, or at least under Descartes, was that instead of God being at the very center of human life, that was replaced with rationality. Rationality, being rational, was seen as the very thing it was it meant to be human. Human. Straddling both the 19th and the 20th century, uh, Freud was the first intellectual really to challenge this view. And Freud was saying that, sure, rationality is very important, and many cases, many people do make rational decisions. But do you know what? Human beings also make ridiculously irrational decisions as well. So while there's something else, there's something deeper that drives us. And he was saying, while we are rational, the thing that really drives us is our unconscious desires, unconscious drives. And the two strongest ones are the drive of fear and the drive of survival. Now, um, uh, Freud, as we know, he was Austrian, Jewish, Austrian uh, psychoanalyst. And, you know, ironically and sadly, his um, theory of um, psychology was picked up and used by the Nazis and used to manipulate uh, the German population during the Second World War. After the war, um, however, uh, Descartes, uh, sorry, Freud's nephew, um, who was born in the United States. Um, his name was Edward Bernays. He was born in America, and he basically used the same tools or the same thinking to kickstart the American economy. After the war, the American economy was completely tanking. And so Edward Bernays used the same ideas around these unconscious drives to kickstart the American economy and get America out there buying again. 
And he um, became known as the father of American advertising. He wrote a book called Propaganda. Snappy title, right? And, um, and he became the father of American advertising, not least because of his ability to sell cars to men as a sign of their virility and cigarettes to women as a sign of their liberation. Cigarettes were sold to women with, and they were rebranded as torches of freedom. It's hard to believe, right? But that's actually how they got the American economy going again. Paul Mazer, he's from Lehman Brothers, go the bankers. Um, he's kind of working off a very similar script. And he, this is a quote from Paul Mazer. He said, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old had been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. Um, result, this resulting kind of consumer culture which we now live in um, is wonderfully encapsulated by, uh, the, um, by the words of J.D. Rockefeller. J.D. Rockefeller was an uh, oil tycoon, um, a banker, one of the wealthiest pers- pe- you know, people in America. And when he was asked by a reporter, how much money is enough? The reply, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. He had 1% of the American economy uh, in his back pocket. And even though the consumer culture and basically post-war, consumer culture of post-war America was really just getting going, you know, this phrase really symbolizes much of the spirit or much of our sense of discontentment ourselves, even as we kind of hit late uh, secularism, the sense of nagging, sense of dissatisfaction, disenchantment um, around kind of around consuming, right? It just doesn't seem to get us anywhere. And that's because... The, the dimensions of the human soul are so deep and so wide. You could tip the riches of the world into it and it wouldn't touch the sides. Our hearts are actually made for God. The dimensions of our soul, the dimensions of our interior life is for the presence of God. So no wonder you could chuck all sorts of stuff in there and it's not gonna matter just one little jot. St. Augustine, our namesake, in the fourth century said this, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Anyone here feeling restless today? Anyone here feeling detached? Anyone here wondering what the point is? You know, it's so often the case we get caught, we get kind of drifted away, and what we need is actually our hearts to be filled and our hearts to be centered um, from the very presence of God. Now, in saying all this, so giving you this brief cultural history around American consumerism and the kind of weight of Western capitalism is for a point. My point is actually not to say that everything in the West is wrong. That's not the point. But what I want to say is that the this is a very powerful, shaping, formative environment um, that we're living in today. It's got a very powerful force on our life. It's kind of like a gravitational pull. This is, the, this is where we're swimming in. And it has a hugely, you know, 
hugely influential shape uh, on our lives. And now because we've got phones in our pockets, not just here, but basically everywhere, these narratives and these kind of ways of thinking are not just in the West, it's, it's everywhere, right? It's piped everywhere. And a great example of that is, in response to coming out of lockdown, basically a number of people everywhere, you know, it's the revenge shopping phenomenon, right? Coming out of lockdown, people celebrated the sense of freedom, celebrated the sense of relief, celebrated the sense of like, oh my gosh, my flagging self-esteem, I can, I, can re, I can restore all that. And you can bolster that by the very act of going on a shopping spree. It was just like a reflex, right? How are we gonna, oh my gosh, I'm consuming, I feel human again. This is the very point we've got to ask, why are we doing that? Why, we've been shaped into this. We've been shaped into that being uh, the response. You know, what we do on the outside deeply shapes us on the inside. And this is, and because we live and work and play in this environment, this is where we swim, right? This is the environment we're in. Even though we might be thinking the right things, even the right theological thoughts, our hearts and our desires can quickly get caught in the riptide of this cultural stream. And before you know it, our businesses, our talents, our careers, our education, our finances, our relationships can be pulled into the service of consuming. You know, you can just, they just become in service of consuming. And so then we, we, you know, we're about consuming goods and services, consuming entertainment, consuming art, consuming education, consuming wine, just so that we have a sense of fulfillment, which has now been reshaped by the culture we live in. It's a God-given thing that human beings should have deep significance. But in many ways, that gets reshaped by the culture that we're living in. And Jesus knew that. Jesus knew the power of this. And so when, it's, when he says, when it says about coming and living within the kingdom of God, thinking about what does it mean to live within the sphere of God's um, uh, effective will, Jesus says don't only believe in the kingdom of God, but he says seek. You've got to seek it. seek it. Seeking is something that you do, right? You have to do it. And it's not just something that you do. It's, in fact, the very first thing you do. And why does Jesus ask people to do that? Because Jesus wants your life to count. Jesus wants your life to count. Jesus wants your life to be deeply significant and have a real sense of purpose about it. Despite, you know, all that's going on, Jesus actually wants your life to have a deep sense of satisfaction. Jesus does not want you to waste your life by becoming incredibly successful at something that doesn't matter. And neither does Jesus want to have you to live a shrunken existence just so that you can manage the small things, the small part of your life in and of yourself. That would be in the words of William Irvin, to mislive your life. There's a possibility that we can mislive our life. Here's the larger quote from which that phrase is drawn from. There is a danger that you will mislive, that despite all your activity, despite all the pleasant diversions you might have enjoyed while alive, you will end up living a bad life. 
and realize that you wasted your one chance at living. Instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable, you squander it because you, because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various baubles life has to offer. The spiritual practice of simplicity is about decluttering your life, prioritizing your life, so that it centers on the person of Jesus and so it can have impact in the world. It's about decluttering your life, decluttering those priorities so that you can have impact in the world. And so over the next week, we've got a number of people coming to speak. We've got Dan Walsh. He's going to be speaking online because we're not meeting here on Labor Weekend. We're going online for Labor Weekend. Everyone know that? Got that? Yeah, cool. He's going to be about speaking on the simplicity of heart through the practice of worship. Next, our good friend Spanky is going to be um, talking about the simplicity of speech through the practice of silence. Following Spanky, we've got Dr. Sarah Harris. She's going to be speaking on the simplicity of pleasure through the practice of appreciation. Then our very own um, blues-loving Matt Maslin will be speaking on the simplicity of stuff through the practice of detachment. And then John Hoskins going to bring us home on the simplicity of contentment. So that's where we're going for the next uh, little while. Three weeks ago, my mum called and um, she rang to say that my grandmother was in her final days. And so um, it was basically, we were at, just come out of lockdown and there she is, there's Mabel. Um, so we're just coming out of lockdown and so Sarah and I, we kind of grabbed some tickets and we all shot down to Nelson on Saturday. We got down there at 1.30, she died at 2.30 and on Wednesday I took her funeral. One of the uh, interesting things about organising a family funeral, which I don't recommend, by the way, it's such a drama, so much easier doing someone else's funeral. Anyway, doing this funeral and organising it, and, um, you know, my grandmother lived for, um, you know, just shy of 98 years, such a great innings. Um, but when I was organising the funeral, one of the things that we, I got this picture back from the funeral director, and what um, really uh, struck me was that, you know, between the 7th of November, 1922, and the 26th of September, 20, <laughs> it's supposed to be another zero on the end of that, and was that dash. And that dash represents nearly 98 years of a life well-lived, mostly well-lived. You know, um, my grandmother, um, she obviously got married my grandfather. He went to the war, he came back from the war, um, he kick-started together, they kick-started the Kaipoi Woolen Mills, he became the mayor of Kaipoi, they raised a family, etc., etc. But that dash, that's not a very big dash, is it? For 98 years, it's not much of a dash. The call of Jesus is not only about getting our theology right, and it's not only about securing life beyond death. It's about living before death. It's actually about life before death. Jesus is wanting to show us what it means to live well. It's about learning to live his way in the world. So that that dash, and learning to live well in God's world, that dash can be fruitful, produce the fruit of the kingdom, and that your life uh, would flourish also. And the secret to all of that is, is simplicity. 
It's about focus. It's about understanding, hey, what does God want from me and in God's will? I want to come into land by just reading, here's Paul's advice to a first century church in Rome. I think it's really great advice for us as we think all about this today. I'm going to land here and then we're going to pray. So Paul, writing to the church in the first century, says this. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life. Your sleeping, eating, going to work life, and walking around, oh, sorry, going to work and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Great advice, right? From the first century. This is not a new problem. And the solution is exactly the same. It's about focus. It's about simplicity. It's about allowing Jesus to hold the elements of your life in his care and him teaching you to use them for the good and the extension of his kingdom. Let's stand together. I just want to give us an opportunity just to stand and to be open to the presence of God. And if you're new um, with us uh, here today, we always do this at St. Augustine's. We really trust God at his word when he says that he's for us and he's not against us, that through his Holy Spirit, he wants to bring good things into your life. And so we just normally give God some space and some time to speak into our lives. So